I'm Chris Reback. This is a special bonus episode of Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Each October, BCRF-funded investigators are honored at the annual Symposium and Awards Luncheon in New York City. The event announces the Foundation's grant investment for the coming year and recognizes BCRF investigators, many of whom we feature in these Investigating Breast Cancer Conversations, for their devotion to ending breast cancer and their trailblazing scientific inquiry. The audience is comprised of researchers and BCRF supporters, and the gathering provides the rare and unique opportunity each year for BCRF researchers to be in one place to share ideas and collaborate with fellow colleagues from around the world. This year, the program began with an extraordinary symposium. An expert panel of BCRF investigators discussed current breaking topics in breast cancer research, ranging from prevention and diagnosis to treatment and survivorship. We're proud to bring you that discussion here in this special bonus podcast. The symposium panelists included Dr. Eric Weiner of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dr. Weiner is also the recipient of BCRF's 2019 Jill Rose Award for Scientific Excellence. Dr. Dawn Hirschman of Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Neil Iyengar of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and Dr. Judy Garber of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dr. Garber also serves as BCRF Scientific Director. The panel was moderated by BCRF's founding scientific director, Dr. Larry Norton of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. We'll have our regular episode of Investigating Breast Cancer in the next weeks. Now, here's Dr. Larry Norton and BCRF's 2019 Symposium. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I don't know how many years we've been doing this, but every year it gets better and better, and thank you all for being here. Um, uh, other people will be coming in. This is the usual thing over this next, uh, next hour or hour and 15 minutes that we're doing this. Uh, we changed the format just a little tiny bit, uh, to, and I've, we've asked this extraordinary group of, uh, of grantees, uh, clinician scientists, to, uh, to, to be educational in their focus as well as talking about their own research but also to educate on very important topics. And I'm going to pass the, uh, the podium on to, to the group uh, so as not to waste time as we, as, and ask them to introduce themselves. Uh, it's Dawn Hirschman, Eric Weiner, uh, Neil Yengar, and of course Judy Garber, who's the scientific director of the BCRF, um, to, uh, to uh, uh, you know, introduce themselves and really talk about their topics in a little bit more depth than we've done, than we've done in the past. Uh, before we get started, I've introduced my colleagues here. I just want to introduce one other person because it's an exceptional few weeks. Is Bill Kalin, one of our grantees from 2006, just won the Nobel Prize. Bill. All right. All right. All right. Okay. Thank, thank you. Very gratified by your work. Uh, extraordinary and huge impact. Um, and I expect all the other grantees who are sitting on both sides and may have comments as we go forward. Uh, every year I want one of you to win a Nobel Prize. All right, it's extremely important that we do that because we've got to keep the momentum going, all right, uh, in this regard. Okay, so let's, let's just start off and, uh, with, uh, with uh, the, the main program. Uh, and I'd like to introduce Dawn, introduce yourself, and tell us so. about your topic. I'm uh, Dawn Hirschman. Uh, I'm a professor of medicine and epidemiology at Columbia University and a breast cancer oncologist. And, um, you know, early in my career, I think one of the things that really stood out to me was the number of people that would, 
really, we'd have all these great treatments for breast cancer. Uh, even though we have a, a long way to go, we have some really spectacular treatments. And it always stood out like that a large number of people wouldn't get those treatments. They wouldn't start those treatments. They wouldn't finish those treatments. And, you know, we spent all of this time, energy, and effort, you know, trying to discover and uh, put forward new, better ways of, of treating breast cancer, but not everybody got them. And and uh, I remember early on, you know, we started using uh, anti-hormone therapy, anti-estrogen therapy, and patients would come in after we put them on, aromatase inhibitors in particular, just in tears because the side effects would make them miserable. Uh, they would, would say things like, I can't get up from my chair, I, I can't go down the stairs in the morning, I, don't, I know these medicines work, but I can't take them, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And it really made us start to think, like, well, how, you know, how many people are like this out there? How many people can't take their medication? And, and, and what are the reasons why? And we started to investigate that. And we found that, you know, over 50% of patients couldn't complete the five years of treatment on time the way they were prescribed. A lot of people stopped. They did, took it intermittently. So it made us start to think, well, what can we do to try to help fix that problem? And when we first started to go back to the clinical trials, say, well, why, why is there a discrepancy, you know, in terms of what people are saying versus what we see in the clinical trials? In the clinical trials, maybe only, you know, 8%, 7% said they had a problem with side effects. We started to realize that we weren't really measuring side effects in clinical trials because we weren't asking patients how they felt. And it really opened our eyes to the importance of, of asking patients while they're on treatment what the side effects are that they're experiencing so that we can better measure it, we can have appropriate outcomes to know, but also so that we can control those side effects so that we can keep people on their treatments. So it sort of started a whole you know, way of us thinking about patient-reported outcomes and incorporating that into trials and putting in the patient's voice so that we know exactly what we're talking about when we get these results. So you know, in thinking about side effects and why people start, stop taking their medications, we've, we've looked at a lot of different things. We've looked at financial factors and, and how even small differences in, in the amount of money you have to pay out of pocket can make a big difference in terms of your likelihood of staying on a medicine or the type of insurance you have. But the number one reason why people stop taking their medication is side effects. So we started to investigate all different types of things in terms of controlling side effects from the aromatase inhibitors. And we looked at medications like antidepressants, and, and they can certain types of medicines like we call duloxetine or Cymbalta, they can work, but people don't want to take them because often we hear, I don't want to take another medicine that causes side effects to control side effects from a medicine I have to take. So totally reasonable. So let's think about other ways we can try to control these side effects. And so we worked with uh, Melinda Irwin, who's a grantee, on looking at exercise and can exercise control these side effects. And, and her study showed that, yeah, actually exercise can control some of the side effects and hopefully keep patients on their medications. We looked at other types of compounds like omega-3 fatty acids to control side effects, and that can be effective too in some types of patients. But probably the most impactful thing we did was, was we studied acupuncture. And we did a very large, rigorous, multi-center trial 
looking at whether or not acupuncture could control those side effects. And people say, well, you know, of course acupuncture is going to work, right? Because, you know, patients would just get it. But it's really important to test these things because people pay a lot of money out of pocket. And you can have an influence um, if you find out that it's actually effective. What we found was that, you know, we analyzed the data all different types of ways. No matter how we analyzed it, acupuncture was better. And what was it better then? Well, we had an arm that showed was sham acupuncture. So we sort of tried to trick people into a placebo of acupuncture. And we had um, people wait until they got their acupuncture. And, you know, the true acupuncture actually was, was significantly better. It reduced those side effects by more than 50% uh, in terms of uh, improvement. And um, so people say, well, why do you need to do that? Well, the reason we need to do it is so that we can convince insurance companies to pay. And the results of those trials uh, enabled us to, you know, pressure a fair number of the commercial insurance companies to cover those costs. And it's important because we need to think globally and work with every patient sort of in a personalized way to help make sure that whatever the problem is that's stopping them from getting the treatments that work, that we come up with a solution that's right for them. Excellent. Thank you so very much. Uh, acupuncture also helps you chair these kinds of meetings, by the way. I, I, have, I, have, I have a needle in me right now, and if it were not for that, you know. Um, uh, Eric Weiner, who's the Jill Rose Award uh, recipient uh, this, this year, and I'll have a lot of nice things and some not nice things to say about him a little bit later this morning that you'll hear. Uh, Eric, what's, what's, what's your topic? Um, well, who are you? Who am I? Um, so um, uh, I'm, I'm up in Boston, and I am a medical oncologist. Oh, sorry, not close enough. Excuse me. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm at Dana-Farber in Boston, where I direct the breast cancer program. I'm a medical oncologist. I do research. I take care of patients. Um, I try to keep everybody happy there, um, meaning all the people we work with. Um, and... Um, that you'll just forgive me if I just tell you a brief story, which is that um, the fact that I know a lot about breast cancer and very little about everything else was brought home to me many years ago by my oldest son, who at the time was about 11. This is many years ago. And he had a rash on his face, which I kept telling him was because he got chocolate all over his face whenever he ate anything that had chocolate in it. And he went to the dermatologist. The dermatologist said, your father's wrong. You have perioral dermatitis. Jeffrey comes home, and he says, Dad, he said, you're wrong. I said, no, Jeffrey, I still think it's like getting all that chocolate on your face. He said, Dad, if I had breast cancer on my face, I'd listen to you. Otherwise, I'm going to the dermatologist. So when your own family feels that way, you know, um, what can you say? Um, so um, I asked Judy and Larry what what I should talk about, and the uh, answer I got uh, was that I should talk about breast cancer treatment and what has happened with breast cancer treatment over the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and I'll do this pretty briefly. Um, 20 years ago, we thought of breast cancer as one monolithic disease. We treated it all about the same. Somebody would come in and say, what kind of breast cancer do I have? And I'd say, you have stage one, you have stage two, you have stage three breast cancer. But in other ways, we didn't know how to tell one woman's breast cancer from another. And the stage tells you how much cancer there is, but it doesn't tell you anything about the personality of the cancer. 
And where we have excelled over the last two decades is understanding more about the personality of different cancers or the biologic behavior of those cancers. And the result is we no longer have one-size-fits-all treatment. We have one-size-fits-all. We have treatments for women who have HER2-positive cancer and women who have estrogen receptor-positive cancer and women who have triple-negative breast cancer. Now, in all of these areas, we're finding out that there are sub-diseases within those, those individual entities. So not all HER2-positive breast cancer is the same. Certainly not all triple-negative breast cancer are the same. And for sure, the 75% of women who have estrogen receptor positive and, and HER2-negative breast cancer, that's a, a very mixed group of tumors and patients who, who have them. And so we're doing a lot better. We're doing a lot better in terms of having better treatments for many women. And for many others, we're also learning that we can do as well by them and avoid a lot of these toxicities and side effects that Don was talking about by in, at sometimes backing off, but backing off in a, in a very thoughtful way so that we're not putting anyone at risk, but we're simply trying to give the most effective treatments to the, to the patients who need them. And for those who may not need such aggressive treatment, um, we're learning that in some situations we can carefully do less. And there are many people around the country um, who have taken that approach in terms of trying to figure out which are the patients where we need to develop new drugs and new treatment approaches, and who are the patients where perhaps a little bit less is, is, is equally good. And this isn't just in medical oncology with drugs. Um, I looked over and saw Laura Esserman sitting someplace here, right there, um, who is, a, 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 as many of you know, a surgeon at the University of California at San Francisco and has run a large research program looking at both ways that we can give more and give less uh, medical therapy, but also thinking about the surgical issues and the radiation issues. Because the whole treatment approach we take sometimes is, is pretty overwhelming for people. And to the extent that we can be more specific and more tailored about our approaches, we're going to do better. And I, I actually think that we're really getting there. Happy to answer questions about this as time goes on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I mean, th there's, there's clear linkage here, I mean, between the, the notion, I, I just sort of want to say um, editorially is that um, uh, you know, I've seen the whole transformation of the treatment of breast cancer really, in, you know, in my career. You know, um, uh, I, I've been involved in medical oncology from seven years after the very beginning. So I've seen, except for the first seven years, I've seen the whole evolution of the field. And in breast cancer, which has really taken the lead in many, in many respects in terms of moving forward um, in, 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 in many ideas, we've really reached a point where um, we can start talking about making the therapies more effective and less toxic simultaneously by choice of the appropriate therapy of the right patient, by handling side effects of therapy to make sure people take their medications. And this is really a remarkable thing because you go back, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, it was just, you know, more and more and more suffer. You got to suffer to get to, you know, to get the maximum effect. You got to push people forward uh, in that regard. And that was a very important point in the evolution of the field, extremely important point in the evolution of the field. Now we're at another point, which is really extremely gratifying. And we'll probably 
probably have more to talk about as we move forward. Uh, and to talk about like feeling really good, I brought Neil Yangar. All right. Uh, that, that's a great introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. I hope I can make everyone feel really good this morning. Um, so uh, I'd like to start by saying good morning, and it's my great uh, privilege and honor to be sitting on this esteemed panel, and we're grateful for the support of the BCRF. Uh, for really accelerating our, our research program. Um, my name is Neil Iyengar. I'm a medical oncologist and uh, clinical investigator at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And we focus on how we can optimize our metabolic health for preventing cancer and for uh, improving response to cancer therapies. In other words, uh, preventing resistance to cancer treatment. So wh what do I mean when I say metabolic health? Uh, well, I'm talking about factors that we might think about when we go to see a cardiologist or an endocrinologist, things like uh, diabetes, blood sugar levels, insulin levels, cholesterol, obesity. Um, we know from the work of uh, several BCRF investigators, epidemiologists here today, uh, that obesity is a leading modifiable risk factor for the development of several cancers. At least 13 cancers are related to obesity, and that number will probably grow as we learn more. Uh, and if we think about obesity as a classic state of metabolic dysfunction, um, there's a lot going on. So we partnered uh, several years ago uh, with the insights of Cliff Huddis, who many of you know, uh, with Andy Dannenberg, a BCRF investigator who's here today as well, uh, to collaborate on really understanding the biology of why obesity can promote the growth of breast and other cancers. If you think about the breast, it is largely composed of fat. Fat is our most metabolically active tissue. And many of you have heard about the concept of the tumor microenvironment. Well, if you look at the uh, tumor microenvironment of breast cancer, one of the most prominent components of that microenvironment are fat cells. And what we've learned is that in the setting of obesity, the fat tissue in the breast and elsewhere can become dysfunctional. Uh, specifically, it can become inflamed and produce inflammatory molecules, which can directly stimulate the growth of cancer cells. Uh, in addition to that, those inflammatory molecules can stimulate the production of uh, the enzyme aromatase, which many of you know is the key enzyme for the production of the hormone estrogen. And so what, we are, what we've found is that this fat tissue dysfunction in the breast can create a tumor microenvironment that is inflamed and pro-estrogenic and ripe for the growth uh, of breast cancer. And this classically happens in the setting of obesity, but beyond obesity, we've also found that in up to one-third of women who are not classically defined as obese, who have a normal weight, who appear to be healthy, and may even be told by their physician that they're healthy, up to one-third of these women also have this fat tissue dysfunction, inflammation, higher levels of aromatase uh, in the breast fat. Uh, and so we've learned from the research of several other BCRF investigators here today who've pioneered lifestyle interventions for the treatment of uh, side effects, which we heard about from Dawn, that these lifestyle interventions can also improve the metabolic state uh, of the body. And so now we're very interested in how we can develop precision lifestyle interventions uh, to help in the prevention and treatment of breast cancer. And what I mean by prevention or precision lifestyle interventions uh, is uh, building on what we heard about from Eric, that this concept of one size fits all doesn't apply not only to our breast cancer treatments, but also to lifestyle interventions. 
And so we're developing personalized exercise prescriptions uh, using uh, our BCF uh, support to uh, leverage technologies like tele-exercise, where we're shipping treadmills out to patients' homes equipped with tablets such that they can interface through video conferencing with our exercise physiologists here in Manhattan to participate in supervised, precision, personalized exercise. We're developing nutritional interventions, for example, partnering plant-based diet approach with precision exercise for women who are taking aromatase inhibitors to try to improve that health of the breast fat. And finally, if you think about the biology of tumors and how we develop new molecular therapies that are specific to the biology of tumors, we can start to think about that same paradigm for lifestyle interventions like nutrition. Some tumors are dependent on growth factors or growth pathways that involve insulin. So we're testing diets that lower insulin, like low-carbohydrate or on the other end of the spectrum, high-protein diets, like even the ketogenic diet, um, for supporting the treatment effect of some of our new breast cancer therapies. And so what I hope I've conveyed to you is that one diet or one lifestyle intervention may be right for one person, but may not be the right approach for another person, similar to how we think about our breast cancer therapies. And with that approach, we hope to uh, really develop personalized guidelines, interventions, and recommendations um, for lifestyle interventions uh, that could have an anti-cancer effect. Neil, thank you very much. Um, it, you know, the general theme is, is which we didn't intend, but it's obviously rising. It is personalization, doing the right thing for the individual. Uh, you know, the, the right way to intervene so that people can actually take the medicine they're supposed to take, get the right treatment and, uh, and the right exercise. And I, I saw a lot of head shaking while that was going on. Fill out your questions, all right, please, and hand them forward because I think we have a lot to talk about with all these three topics. But of course, the thing that's most, most specific to you are your genes. Uh, and, uh, and that's something you can't escape, the genes you're born with. Judy, do you have any thoughts about genes and cancer? Is that what you wanted me to talk about? Um, Oh, I'm Judy Garber. I'm a breast oncologist, too, and I do clinical cancer genetics at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, and I was hoping Neil would have an exercise intervention for the investigators that would help us do it. Oh, no, no, I'm... I'm, I'm... (laughs) We're in the do or not do, we're in the do side, so personalized would be great. Uh, So I've worked in cancer genetics for a long time. BCRF has been involved in supporting cancer genetics really almost since Mary Claire King first mapped the first BRCA1 gene. Um, And many of us collaborate, which is something else that's characterized BCRF investigators and breast cancer as a field uh, because we needed to work together to get enough numbers to work. So we've known now for many years that breast cancer in particular, but also ovarian cancer, could travel in families and be related often to a genetic factor. And thanks to work by Mary Claire and many others in this room, we now know about many genes. So we know about BRCA1 and 2 that are the most common genes and which we've been testing now in many women with breast cancer and many with family histories for more than 25 years, I think. and finding mutations, but we've also learned that there are more genes. And we've learned part of that through the work of people like David Livingston, Alan DeAndrea, Alan Ashworth, who figured out what BRCA1 and 2 did, that they're important in DNA repair, and then mapped down the pathways looking at all the other genes that were involved to ask, were they also important in breast cancer? 
And some of them are, and some to a lesser extent, and some of them contribute to risk of other cancers as well. So for our patients that we tested in the early days and didn't find anything, who still wonder, could there be something genetic, the answer might be that it's time to look again now at other genes. And we've learned that our early thinking, as is often the case in research, was guided by being strict as, as strict as possible to try to have the closest definition so we could at least find these genes and figure out how to use them. So that was what I mean by that is people with the strongest family histories. But we've learned that many people may not have a very strong family history. Through no fault of their own, they may have mostly male relatives um, in which you don't see the breast or ovarian cancer. So you've had to think about expanding who gets tested and how to make testing more accessible to the broader population of people who may not realize testing's for them. Now, we've had to make testing safer, so to work to make the penalties by your insurance companies or otherwise against discrimination against testing, and we've had time to do some of that. But now we can concentrate on making testing more available for appropriate populations. We don't, we're not ready to tell everybody necessarily to be tested, although I don't think we're too far from that, at least every cancer patient. So there are studies that are here, like the BEFORE study, which is for the Ashkenazi Jewish population, looking at people who really may not realize at all that they have risk, but just by having even a Jewish grandparent, you may be Jewish enough to have a tenfold higher chance of carrying a BRCA mutation. And you may not find it until you're like the internist I saw on Tuesday who's had absolutely no family history uh, but had ovarian cancer. And that's when she learned that she has a mutation that she inherited from her father and so hadn't been seen. One in 40, if you've heard about them, that's their story. We want to prevent this and prevent the deaths from cancer that are avoidable not only for our breast families, but also now we've learned ovary, pancreas, advanced prostate cancer. So the guidelines for testing have expanded so that people with those diagnoses are found. And part of that is to help prevent cancer in their families. And part of that is because there are treatments now for people whose tumors arise in the setting of a mutation that makes them vulnerable to certain kinds of exploitation by treatment. So Eric can talk about personalized treatment. This is really personalized treatment. It's about the way the tumor came to be as much as its biology determined by that. So these are the PARP inhibitors. And now there are drugs for people whose tumors become resistant to the PARP inhibitors and can get other drugs to try to restore sensitivity. Many people in this room are responsible for trials showing that these drugs are effective in advanced disease. Now there are studies moving them back to an earlier phase of treatment. And not only treatment, but actually, probably the reason many of us went into this field was to look for prevention strategies. And not necessarily only the prevention strategies we, that we all find, at least in theory, much more acceptable, like diet and exercise, which you know are hard to get people to do, so we'll leave that to Neil, but also to other strategies, immune strategies, which are very interesting, try to get the immune revolution to also benefit prevention, but also drugs that target particular targets. So Jeff Lindemann is here, and his work has identified a molecule that looks to be important in BRCA1 breast cancer development, and now there's an international study asking, can we actually reduce the risk of breast cancer, or at least delay it, so we can put off those prophylactic mastectomies. And in that mode, even beyond that, 
BCRF is investing in prevention, in prevention studies, novel trials, and novel approaches this year that uh, we hope will move prevention forward so we can catch up to treatment. Superb. My goodness. The, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the evolution of our field toward knowing much more about the individual uh, so that we can uh, do things that are specific to the individual rather than groups of individuals has really been extraordinary. And I think it's, um, it, it's, it's kind of revolutionary um, to actually hear it with my colleagues actually presented, uh, the, the, the notion that it's not just a matter of um, uh, what... What exercise, you know, go to the gym and exercise, you know, is not necessarily, you know, good advice. I mean, it's bad exercise. You can actually exercise too much, all right? And, uh, you know, for example, so knowing something about, about that, knowing about your genes specifically for prevention strategies and moving forward, and I think we're going to have a lot of discussion of that as, as we move forward. Uh, what is the right therapy so you don't get stuff that's going to hurt you and not necessarily help you? And also, frankly, in my mind, leave room for advances that could then be added in. If you, if you clog up treatment to, to make it too complicated, it's very hard to back down and very hard to add on to it things that may be useful going off in the future. And ways of handling the complications of therapy in such a way that people can actually adhere to regimens that can help them all depend upon analysis of the individual. And so it's kind of the revolution of the individual that we're hearing about, uh, uh, which is, uh, which is uh, really remarkable. I, I think it's partially in my mind, just to share with you, it's, it's, it's advances in science, science in terms of understanding this, but also um, it, I think it's part of the digital revolution, the, the idea of uh, the, you know, an enormous amounts of information that can be available um, and that can help individuals. You know, um, uh, you know we all uh, have enormous access to information that we never had before. I have, a, I have a smartphone in my pocket. I can get more information out of this than I could have any other time in history, and all of us can basically do that. But, 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 the, but the idea that, that information about you as an individual is power for you in terms of your health and the health of your family, I think is all part of this uh, dramatic change, really, in society, dramatic change in our way of thinking about ourselves. Um, now, I had, you'll notice I'm not wearing glasses this year. That's because I have my cataracts done. But that also has, has a downside, which i got to do this, all right, which I couldn't do before. Um, you know, the, 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 this, is a really, this is a really, I think, an overarching question, I think, for you know, all this. And, and I'm just going to read the question because I think it's well-worded. Why do some people still get breast cancer? Even when they do everything right, healthy weight, diet, exercise, no drinking, family history, etc. There's a philosophical, sociological component of this. All right, who wants to, who wants to start that off? Um, uh, you know, you know. Do you have to do something wrong to get breast cancer? Is 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 is, is breast cancer a punishment for something you've done wrong? What do you think, Judy? What do you think? No, I mean, I think um, unfortunately we're not able to explain most breast cancers. We can. We can point to genes sometimes. We can think about lifestyle factors. We can talk about diet and all kinds of unhealthful behaviors. But most of the epidemiologic studies show that we can't attribute a cause for breast cancer. And I think it's, to some extent, you know, it's chance that our genes are reproducing all the time. Every time your cells turn over, you have to completely reproduce with almost exact fealty, the DNA content of your cells, all your chromosomes, and cells make mistakes, and they have DNA repair systems, but as we get older, we make more mistakes, and those mistakes, if they're in the breast, can go on to be breast cancer. If the genes involved are the ones that are responsible for keeping the cells on track, then it's even easier for cancers to develop. 
But, you know, this is true of all cancers, not just breast cancer, childhood cancers. We can't explain those either. So I don't think that, there, that it's really possible to be organisms without some risk of cancer. Unfortunately, too often in women, these are, um, these are cancers. And I would say that I neglected in that to talk about environment because despite decades of very careful study, we've done not very well at being able to figure out which environmental factors we could remove um, to reduce breast cancer risk. And I do think that there's something to that. Neil? Yeah, you know, I think it, I would like to add to that, um, especially in the, in the realm of lifestyle interventions like diet and exercise, that we really have to be careful to um, distance and, and move away from the notion that it's something that a person did, uh, their diet or their exercise, for example, that may have given rise to their breast cancer. That's, that's far from the truth. And I think that um, part of that might be how the message is, um, is, is put out there. Uh, for example, many of you may have seen the updated uh, guidelines for exercise for prevention and, and during cancer treatment uh, published yesterday uh, by the American College of Sports Medicine. And um, you know, the, the article in the New York Times, of course, suggests that we may be able to avoid cancer by exercising. Um, I think that that sort of diminishes um, the the science and the understanding and the complexity of the individual, their genetics, their environment, everything we heard about just now from Judy, um, and really understanding that individual biology and pairing lifestyle interventions that may complement pre other prevention strategies or cancer treatment strategies uh, is something that we have to think about with much greater nuance and depth. Um, I, we could talk about this one topic really forever. I just there's always that, this, that question, which is a recurring question, always reminds me of uh, the uh, opening scene of uh, there, there was a book about um, uh, the beginning of the space program called The Right Stuff, and they made a really good movie about it. I think the book is better than the movie actually, even though the movie was really great. And the opening scene is a bunch of test pilots sort of sitting around because one of their colleagues testing an airplane has just crashed and died. And they all go around saying all the things that that pilot did wrong. You know, oh, you know, he never checked his fuel, he never checked his gauges, you know, and, you know, he didn't always, he never got enough sleep, you know, and they were all going around in a circle. You know, the fact of the matter is he's a test pilot. Sometimes planes are going to crash, and you could do everything right, and they're going to crash. Um, but there is one other thing you can do in addition to everything we've talked about, in addition to understanding that, that, that things can happen to you that are bad, even though you've done nothing sort of wrong, which is support research. I mean, you're all here to support research. Every, all the advances we're talking about just didn't happen by just sort of random chance. They all happened because of the support of research. Basic research, applied research, clinical trials, survivorship, the whole spectrum, which is represented by my extraordinary colleagues on both sides of this room. So, so, so your support of research helps you and helps your family, and I just want to point that out as an extremely important component of what you can actually do in addition to all the personal things that you can do uh, that, we, that we've already mentioned. Um, I have a question here that I know is going to come up because it was just on the news yesterday and apparently made a whole big fuss, so I'm just going to answer it. It's about uh, a breast cancer vaccine that was tested in Moffitt, apparently, and it was presented in a very short press, you know, press release as a, as a major, really advanced. She got a vaccine and her cancer dis disappeared. It wasn't breast cancer. It was doctor carcinoma in situ, uh, which isn't 
not a cancer, and, and um, it's, a, it's a sign, it's a bad term, because it has the word cancer carcinoma in it, but it's basically, it's an, it's an indicator of the possibility the breast would turn to cancer. She had a positive biopsy, she got a vaccine, uh, then had a re-excision, and they didn't see evidence of DCIS. Sometimes doing nothing, if you have a positive biopsy and do a re-excision, you've got no evidence of DCIS. Um, it, it needs enormous amount more study to see whether it's something that's of value or, or not. Uh, and uh, so, um, you know, and it's received a lot of, uh, you know, when I got home last night after we had BCRF events last night, you know, I had about uh, 40 emails about, you know, why can't I get this new vaccine? Um, uh, so really, it's very early on. It's, it's got to be tested sort of appropriately. It wasn't a cancer vaccine. It was a ca- vaccine for cancer predisposition. So I just wanted to sort of mention that because we have a bunch of people that have asked about that. Um, one thing I'd like to ask Eric about is um, there are a number of questions here about the side effects of chemotherapy. Um, and, uh, you know, we heard about the side effects of aromatase inhibitors therapy. Uh, what's going on in decreasing the side effects of chemotherapy? Um, it's a complicated question because there are a number of different things going on. So first, of course, is trying to give less chemotherapy and doing it, avoiding chemotherapy when we don't need to give it. And the second, I would say, is, is how we give the therapy. We know that when we combine many drugs together that there are more side effects than giving drugs one at a time. We know that sometimes it's better to combine them, but sometimes it isn't. Um, but in terms of Um, actually reducing the side effects that exist, there's also a great deal of research that's gone on looking at that, and there are many BCRF investigators who have focused their efforts in that area. We know that treatment of of nausea, for example, is something that is still a problem, but it's very different than it was 20 years ago. I think one of the most challenging side effects that we see Um, is actually neuropathy, um, which can both be an acute problem and a chronic problem and still needs a great deal of study. But that's another one where I think that much of what we need to do is pay close attention to the patient and be careful to back off on the therapy when the side effects are beginning to get to be perhaps worse than any other problem. I think it's something that when a patient is seeing a doctor, um, there's often a focus on treating the cancer and not so much paying attention to the side effects. And sometimes patients don't want to waste time in the appointment to talk about side effects as much as they want to talk about where they're going with their cancer treatment. And I just remind everyone that it's, it's, it's really something that has to be part of medical conversations all the time because the one thing we don't want to do is treat someone effectively and then leave them seriously debilitated with side effects. And that does happen occasionally, less than it ever did before. Yeah, I mean, just to add, just to, add to that, I mean, I think one of the areas, you know, uh, Eric spoke about nausea. It used to be debilitating. It used to be the number one reason why people couldn't get their treatment. And with a lot of research now, there are so many drugs. It's just not an issue anymore. So few people really suffer. Now, it's not totally gone, but (laughs) it's, you know, it's so much better than it used to be. You always have to be careful when an oncologist says that something's well tolerated. 
Exactly. <laughs> but on. think about one of Except the reasons on. why a lot of women didn't want to get chemotherapy is because they didn't want to lose their hair. And, you know, in the past couple of years, we've made enormous yeah. progress with some treatments to, to preserve women's hair. And, and that's a really big quality of life issue for people. Now that we've, you know, reduced the length of, of some of the duration of treatments, you know, but women would still lose their hair. And that was really devastating. And to be able to offer somebody and say, look, it's, it's not, it's, it's awful that you have to go through this. And I'm sorry you have to go through this, but there is one thing we can do to help you get through it. And maybe we can keep, you know, maybe if, if you, and, and what the treatment is, is called scalp cooling. Uh, and, you know, Hope Rugo was one of the lead authors on that. I know she's a BCRF researcher and, and others. And so, you know, the, some of the schooling, the, the cooling uh, technologies to, to preserve hair has been a huge improvement for people. Um, this, Mary Claire, I've got to ask you this question because this is, this is um, a, a question of historic importance. I'll just read the question specifically. Are breast and ovarian cancer related? And if so, how? question. <laughs> they certainly are related. Uh, this, this reminds me to tell you one of my favorite mantras, which is that we, at least we females, are the most successful mammals there have ever been. <laughs> we are fertile during a longer period of our lives than any mammal has ever been previously. We are cognitively active post-fertility longer than any mammal has ever been previously. And at the heart of both of these tremendous evolutionary success stories is estrogen. And estrogen is also at the heart of the relationship between breast cancer and ovarian cancer. So while from the point of view of a geneticist and of course a, a, a lover of BRCA1, it's it's critical to think about the ways in which mutations in BRCA1 and its sister genes predisposed to both breast and ovarian cancer and how we can prevent both breast and ovarian cancer by being aware of those mutations. It is, I think, from the point of view of a woman, enormously important that we, that we think about the role of estrogens in all of this. And from that perspective, the activity of BCRF in supporting the work of my colleagues here who work on the basic biology of estrogens and how we can, by understanding that basic biology, we can hope to modulate their effects in order to preserve for us our tremendous evolutionary advantages and our cognitive activity and our, and our looks well, well, well past, past youth. At the same time, to be able to modulate those effects so as to reduce the risks of breast and ovarian cancer, both for women with mutations in, in BRCA1 and the sister genes and for women who are mutation-free. Thank you, Larry. Okay, thank you. J Judy, um, somebody here had their BRCA test 10 years ago and, and it was reported to them as negative for a deleterious mutation. Should they get retested? So I think for many people, the answer will be yes. If they had enough risk of having a positive test to have thought about it before and the test was negative, now the technology would let you look more completely at the BRCA1 and 2 genes and to look at other related genes. But this is still a question you could ask 
you're a healthcare provider who should know. And if not, then in New York, there's no way to avoid genetics programs. They're everywhere. And you can ask a genetic counselor or a genetic health professional whether you should rethink testing. It's easy to do. It's still a blood test or a saliva test. It's much less expensive than it used to be. And it is more complete. Yeah, I, I would mention the whole idea of genetic counseling really sort of started with Joan Marks and uh, working closely with Mary Claire in the very early days when we didn't really know anywhere as much as we know now. And uh, and and she was a recipient of an award from BCRF, you know, you know, many years ago. You know, really, really for that work. Um, uh, and I just want to sort of call her out uh, as somebody who really started a whole field that I think has been extraordinarily productive. Uh, can BRC genes skip a generation? Uh, you know, her, this is somebody whose mother actually had a deleterious mutation, and she got tested and it was negative, but she's still worried about her kids getting the abnormal gene. Um, go ahead, Judy. Quick answer. So unless my colleagues have discovered something else recently, I don't think so. Genes cannot skip a generation. They have to go from parent to child. But you do have to remember that we're not the only parent. The other parent could have inherited a gene that may not have been tested for, that also could be transmitted to the child. But in general, if you have tested negative, you cannot pass this on to your children. They don't need to be retested to confirm that. Okay. I think what's confusing is that diseases can skip a generation. Because just because someone doesn't have breast cancer doesn't mean that they, for example, didn't inherit an abnormal BRCA gene, or this applies to other illnesses as well. But genes are pretty... Pretty certain. <laughs> certain. <laughs> That's not qualified unless somebody else is willing to stand up and say otherwise. They don't it, skip a generation. Right. It's a, um, you know, just, I, I, I hate to say this, but it's very important to say it. You know, a, a surprisingly high percentage of people have a father that's different than they think they do. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I did um, try to point out uh, there was another parent. You know, uh, and, and the scary thing about that is when I ever make that statement, all the women in the audience laugh and the men sit stony silent with a heart. So I just want to sort of emphasize that. So, you know, and, and, and the whole question, I think this is going to evolve over the next two or three years even very, very quickly. The whole notion of family history being the best predictor of who should be tested and whatever. And Mary's written extensively about this. And there's a lot of discussion. And we're seeing a big movement toward more testing rather than less. But I think we're going to leave that um, for for subsequent discussions because it's really such a big topic and we should have really formal presentations on this. So Russell Nadapati recently joined the Scientific Advisory Board, BCRF, as has Eric, indeed. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and the question really is, that people are hearing a lot about blood testing for, 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 for diagnosis of cancer. Um, and uh, and for screening for cancer, I mean, there there I've seen ads on late night TV myself in in this regard uh, for following patients who've had cancer. Um, it it all relates basically to tests for DNA in the blood. What what do you, what do you think of that? This is an amazing research opportunity for us to be able to non invasively look for biomarkers that can tell us about cancer that may still be there or that may be um, getting worse on therapy. It is still very much in the research realm, however. I, we don't really have a current test that we can widely give to either detect cancer or, you know, as a screening modality or else to modify treatment. Not yet. But I think that, that that's something that we're all working on in the research setting that um, I think is extremely promising, showing very robust results. So, Okay. Thank you. Uh, Laura, Laura Esserman, UCSF has something to add to that right here. 
it's, uh, it's, it's just as important that we think about personalizing screening and prevention in the same way, and we're running a large national study called the Wisdom Study to test annual screening against personalized screening. And I think these kinds of tests we have to be very thoughtful about. We don't want to do a lot of things to people who have extremely low risk because you're likely to do more harm than good. So I think a personalized screening approach may be the perfect way to find the very populations at the highest risk where different kind of testing or earlier detection may make a big difference and where you're going to do less harm and a lot of good. Okay, Laura, thank you. Um, Lisa Carey, are you around? Or, uh, yeah. Why is everybody who I'm asking is sitting way in the back here? Uh, come up to the forward. Because th that, uh, people are, are, have heard that you can actually design studies that are targeting DNA abnormalities, mutation status, rather than the diseases. Um, uh, and they, they're calling them basket trials. You gave a really superb talk about this yesterday to the, to, to the scientists in our symposium. Um, what, what, what's your current feeling about the, the notion of treating the molecular abnormality rather than treating the, uh, the disease specified by the organ in which it arose? Well, I think, you know, the, the world of cancer therapy is absolutely moving towards, you know, using the molecular aberrations as the guide to what targeted therapy is going to work the best, because that also allows you to, you know, emphasize the effectiveness and minimize the toxicity. So there's no question that we need to do that. Um, it does get complicated, and I think in some of the ways that, that Larry is mentioning, we can't underestimate the complexity of this. And there have been studies where people had super effective drugs for melanoma with particular molecular problems in their DNA. And they just assumed the drug would work the same if you found that same molecular abnormality in a colon cancer. And it doesn't. And the truth is that um, cancer, the biology is very, very uh, uh, sophisticated and complicated, and so it's not easy. So you need our scientists to actually help inform what we're studying and how we're studying it, and we have to look at things in a system-wide way and not just assume that looking at one thing at a time is going to work. Excellent. Thank you. So obesity is bad for you, all right? Kind of, we all know that, all right? Uh, but uh, is it the obesity or is it the things you are eating to make you obese, all right? Uh, that, 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 that is the bad thing. In other words, you know, if you happen to be overweight or, you know, even on the, you know, the obese side, but you're, for some reason, you know, there's some genetic predisposition to fat accumulation in your body and, you know, you're actually are eating a fairly healthy diet. I mean, this one zeroes in specifically on dairy, all right? But I think it's a general question. Is it the fat in your body or is it the things you eat to make you fat that's important? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question, and it gets back to this notion of understanding individual biology. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that, that we find this fat tissue dysfunction uh, in up to a third of, of people who are normal weight, who are not defined as obese. And in fact, there's a small percentage, um, about, uh, up to 10% of individuals who do meet the definition of obesity, who actually have functioning fat tissue and healthy fat tissue. And so I think that... Um, there are components one can develop the bad biology of obesity independent of what their actual biology, uh, what body weight is um, through their lifestyle, but that's not the whole story. Um, there are certainly genetic predispositions, uh, environmental factors uh, that contribute to whether or not a person's metabolic state is actually healthy or un unhealthy and is going to contribute to the growth of cancer. So the, shorter, the short answer to that question is uh, it really depends on the individual, whether or not it's 
their, uh, their underlying metabolic state, uh, or, if, or it's their lifestyle, or a combination of both. Um, a superb answer. And it, it, th- this is a recurrent question, which I'm just going to sort of talk about here. Do you want to add to that briefly, uh, Joyce? Mike over there, but then I want to make sort of a general comment. Um, so a lot of people ask the question, is there good fat and is there bad fat? Am I a fat person who has okay fat? And I think we don't know a lot about how the microbiome and the specific components of our diet... Define microbiome. So microbiome are all of the bacteria that are part of our normal body, in our skin, in our gut, in all of the openings to our body, our nostrils, our vagina, and all of those other places. But So there, there are ways in which our body interacts with the environment that influence um, putting on weight, etc. So there are a lot of things we don't know about fat, but one of the things that I think is really an important take-home message is that interventions that reduce weight have been shown to affect survival from breast and colon cancer. So bariatric surgery in individuals who are obese has been shown to influence uh, survival from breast and colon cancer. And interventions, there's still, there's very active ongoing investigation to see whether lifestyle interventions with diet and exercise impact survival from breast cancer. And the answers are not yet all in. But I think there's very clear evidence from biomarkers that blood tests and markers of inflammation do go down with exercise. And estrogens do go down with diet and exercise. And so if we can influence by doing, by weight loss, the biomarkers of bad outcome of breast cancer, it's probable that we will influence things. And I think the take-home message is weight, 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 and weight. So, so there's probably not good fat. There, prob- there may be details of good fat and bad fat, but for the majority of people, getting rid of it is what really matters most. The, the, there's a recurrent, thank you. There's, there's um, um, I mean, just two comments. One quick editorial is that um, when we first started doing this symposium, we talked a lot about the cancer cell. And you can hear we're talking a lot about other kinds of tissues in the body that are very related to, to, to the cancer. You know, uh, you know, white blood cells, fat cells, uh, you know, even bacteria that exist in the GI tract. The, the whole picture of what is cancer is rapidly evolving. The leaders in the field are, are all around the room or, around, uh, you know, dispersed among, among you in, in terms of answering these questions. And I think it's an extraordinary exciting time biologically. The, the other point that I wanted to make is that uh, it's a recurring question is, gee, you folks are saying a lot of smart things. I mean, how does my doctor know these things? Um, how do I get this information? Uh, am, I getting the right, am I getting too much therapy? Am I getting too little therapy? What about side effects? How can this be handled? And, and I think one of the important things that BCRF is going to be, in, is already involved in it. Um, Judy already mentioned something called a BFOR study, which is a study you know, of genetic predisposition. But a very important component of that, uh, Ken Offit sitting in the front row, you know, instrumental, and others in the room in, that, in, this, in this regard, is how to disseminate information, how, how to educate people about themselves so that they can then ask the right questions uh, and, uh, and get the right answers that are really specific for them. Uh, we don't, we're not very good at this yet, frankly, and I think that you know, it's, not, uh, it's not something we've emphasized a whole lot in the evolution of, uh, of, of health
healthcare, but now is the time to do it, and it's something BCRF really uh, needs to, uh, to focus in on. Uh, Eric is dying to say something, and then, and then Dawn, who's uh, going to say something Later, after please. that. Well, I was just going to say, you know, we, um, we now have so many technological tools. Healthcare technology has advanced a lot to help us disseminate information better. Um, things like Twitter, you see, like, important results getting disseminated very quickly. Um, you see that there are um, uh, social networks that help doctors um, that are from you know, areas where they may not have experts to ask questions to experts to get you know, answers quickly, that we can make the world a lot smaller by using technology, uh, and that can help us disseminate information all over the world. Great. Two quick comments. One, we are in the midst of conducting a very important national study um, that there may even be people in this room who are participating in, which is asking the question that if you're a woman with breast cancer and you are presently overweight, does intervening with an intervention that, that, that seeks to reduce weight um, whether that changes your chance of having a recurrence of, of the cancer. There are going to be 3,000 women enrolled in that study. There are already about 2,000 enrolled. It's being conducted by one of our colleagues, Jennifer Ligabel, um, and many others working with her nationally, and it's, it's really important. The other comment I just wanted to make is, comes back to the importance of research. And it's not just about drugs, of course. Drugs you can only take when the FDA finally approves them. And so when something's being studied, it's not necessarily easy to just take a drug. That's not always the case with other sorts of interventions or circulating DNA or a variety of different tests that tests or interventions that don't necessarily need to be FDA approved. But I think it's very important that we're rigorous about how we evaluate these things. And that, you know, and I'm sure Surat would agree with me that in terms of circulating DNA that companies are advertising, at the moment, we have to be very careful about how we apply those kinds of things in practice until we have more information. And so just because something's available doesn't mean you should rush to get it. Um, my favorite quote is Mark Twain. It's not, what you, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that turns out to be wrong. Uh, you know, uh, and and I and 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 this in healthcare, this is extremely important. I'm just underlining what Eric, Eric has just basically sa said: is that the 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 big change is uh, in this regard is I guess also part of the digital revolution is that on the basis of uh, almost no information or false information or manipulated information or or very preliminary information, you can have big changes because of the dissemination of that recommendation, you know, via via social social media, you know, you know, tools and. Basically change the landscape in ways that we can't ask the questions really anymore um, uh, and, uh, and, and get to the definitive answers. So it, it's, it's extremely important to have definitive answers um, uh, before you, you proceed. Um, uh, and there's lots of people, by the way, I mean, New York City has become really one of the hotbeds for all sorts of alternative ways of treating cancer, you know, people getting all sorts of infusions of things uh, that, are, that are supposed to prevent cancer and prevent heart disease and other things. And, uh, you know, 
you can go into any health food store and have shelves and shelves and shelves of various products. Each one of them is promising wonderful things. Be really careful. I've said this from this this podium, you know, before, but but I'm saying it again. Is uh, you know, there's there is evidence, you know, and then there is superstition, uh, you know, and uh, you know, and then uh, you know, opinion is not valid. You really want evidence. Science is really is really important. Supporting science, following science, evaluating things scientifically is important for you as an individual as well as for all of us as a society. Um, there's another question that comes up about every third card is about immunotherapy for breast cancer. And so Jed Walchuk is sitting right here, uh, one of the great, we have many leaders of the field basically in this room as well. But I'd like to ask Jed to talk about current status um, of, uh, from your point of view. Uh, is immunotherapy for breast cancer prime time? Live mic over here. It only works if I stand up? Okay. Yes. Um, I try not to read into the fact that you introduced the immunology question with, is this superstition or not? Uh, so I, no, those, I think... Those were, those were two unrelated thoughts. Okay. That's, that's, All right. That's, that, that, you know, that's your own paranoia there, so you know, go ahead. I guess, guess I've been working with you for too long. Um, so I think that we're very aware that immunotherapy has emerged as a, another standard way to treat some cancers. Um, and um, melanoma and lung cancer, bladder cancer are some of the more well-known ones where they've made a, a very significant impact um, for some patients with those diseases. More recently, I think it's quite clear that a subset of patients with breast cancer do benefit in a modest way. And these are, of course, of course, um, patients with triple negative breast cancer where we think that the, the biology and the genomic landscape, um, the pattern of mutations that make the cancer perhaps look different than the normal breast tissue um, is more prominent in, in triple negative cancer. And that when combined with chemotherapy, um, uh, an immunotherapy that blocks a pathway called the PD-1 pathway, um, which is essentially a molecular break uh, on the immune system, can lead to more patients having regressions. Um, I think it's an important first step. Um, it's clearly not the, um, the end of our um, investigations in how to best use immunotherapy in breast cancer. Uh, I think we need to understand more about why other breast cancers may not be as responsive and what we might do to try to remedy that. So I think um, now in 2019, uh, immunotherapy is uh, a standard approach to treat uh, breast cancer, specifically triple negative breast cancer, but we have much more research to do, uh, the importance of which was emphasized by Larry. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I passed out a couple of cards because there were a couple of questions I think are specific to presenters. Eric, brain meds. Is there a specific question? Or? Where do we stand in the treatment of brain metastases? So in certain types of breast cancer, so for example, HER2 positive and triple negative breast cancer, brain metastases or the cancer spreading to the brain is actually relatively common during the course of someone who has advanced breast cancer. Very uncommon to be the first place that, that cancer shows up again after a woman has been treated for breast cancer. But again, in somebody who, who is living with advanced breast cancer, it's relatively common. And it can happen, for that matter, in women who have estrogen receptor positive breast cancer as well. Our treatment's gotten better. There's still a long way to go, and, and we have challenges. And I talked a little bit about this yesterday with, with, at our retreat, but some of those challenges are that the brain probably doesn't allow 
drugs to get in as readily, although it does allow some drugs to get in. There may be differences in the tumor microenvironment in the brain or in the microenvironment, such that brain tissue is different for fairly obvious reasons than many other parts of your body. Um, and there may be some specific genetic changes um, that occur in these tumors or that tumors with specific abnormalities may tend to spread to the brain, and we need to understand all of that better. Um, there are many people working on um, new drugs uh, for treatment of brain metastases, and uh, the FDA has, has recognized the importance of this. And finally, I think that we can't underestimate the importance that has been played by surgery and some new and much, much more specialized radiation techniques in treatment. So by no means is this a happy story in breast cancer. We don't want to see patients whose cancer spreads to their brain. Um, but people can live with that complication and live with it well at, at times for, for much longer than was ever the case in the past. Um, and uh, I think we will, make, we will continue to make progress, but we need support. Thank you. Dawn. So I guess two things. One, I just wanted to comment on um, the issue of, of supplements because, um, you know, we've done studies that have shown that certain supplements people were taking to prevent the neuropathy that Dr. Weiner was talking about um, uh, actually can make it worse. And the, the, the critical importance of doing the rigorous studies is not just to tell people what to do, it's also to tell people what not to do. So it's not just about, you know, you know, us having a perception that these things can be harmful. There's evidence that these things can be harmful. So it's important to do the research. Um, the question on the card was, you know, should, should I be taking hormonal therapy for 10 years? What, what's the optimal duration of hormonal therapy to take? And, uh, you know, I think it's very confusing for people because, you know, it's hard enough to get through the first five years, let alone to get through 10 years or even longer. And that's, again, where the whole concept of, you know, personalized treatment comes up. You know, a lot of the benefit for longer duration hormonal therapy is actually to prevent a new breast cancer. So, you know, are you at risk for developing a breast cancer? Do you still have your breast? Those are important questions. I think we're moving into, you know, do you tolerate the hormone therapy? Is that, you know, do, what is your risk to begin with in terms of the cancer coming back? And I think what's really exciting is that there are a lot of molecular tests being developed that may help guide these decisions to help figure out who's actually at risk for a late recurrence so that we can guide those, those answers better in terms of who should be on treatment longer versus not. And, and that work is connecting to you know, cell-free DNA and, and monitoring, and I think it's a really rapidly evolving, very exciting field. Neil, I can't resist this one because this one is about yoga. Um, Neil Iyengar. Uh, yeah, you know, it's true. He's from that family. Um, uh, you know, I, you know, we have a few poses? He's the only person I know you can have a conversation with him while, while he's standing there and putting his foot behind his neck. It's the most, the most, um, uh, is, uh, you, know, uh, you, know, you know, health benefits of yoga and uh, potential dangers of hot yoga. What do you, do you have thoughts? Okay, well, uh, I'll start more, a little more generally. You know, there has, there has been work, uh, important work, looking at um, 
yoga, and we know that from the standpoint of mental health, uh, interventions that emphasize uh, mindfulness, uh, as well as more structured interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy and so forth, can be effective tools for managing a lot of the side effects, including um, uh, anxiety or mood changes that accompany uh, breast cancer treatment. And certainly yoga is within that um, tool belt of potential interventions that can be incredibly helpful um, for managing those types of, of side effects or not even side effects, but just general uh, experiences of individuals who are either at high risk or have developed breast cancer. Um, we are you know, learning about the specific effects of certain types of exercises or physical activity behaviors, uh, and there has been some preliminary work looking at um, yoga and other types of um, uh, lower-intensity exercise uh, on metabolic factors, um, and I think that that's an exciting area of, of research as well. So for now, all I can say uh, is that we know from the from the mental health standpoint um, that yoga is incredibly helpful uh, f for some people. Uh, and to answer the hot yoga question, I'm afraid I don't have a good answer um, to that right now, other, other than it is important that we think about safety for any type of intervention, be it a drug or be it physical activity. And that's why one of the things that we are, we are doing is taking a drug development approach um, to the development of exercise uh, in, for example, phase one trials to find the right dose of exercise, the right type and dose of exercise, phase two trials to determine if that dose is effective in, in helping to shrink tumors and ultimately phase three trials to look at survival. And this is the kind of research that we need to do to develop lifestyle interventions. I'm trying to decide if I want the treadmill shipped to my house or the personalized yoga instruction. <laughs> I would say both attractive <laughs> yeah, opportunities. Yeah. Uh, Eric, I think we're going to have to randomize that one. I think that's, 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 that's clearly a randomized question. That'll be my next piece here, Grant. I'm going to get, we have only a couple minutes left, so I'm going to get myself into real serious trouble here because one of the questions is, and several of the cars, why is there so little research on metastatic breast cancer, okay? But um, the fact is that BCRF has had a huge uh, imprint, and I'm going to ask Dorea El Ashri to actually, you, you, I'm shocking you, I know you're going to beat me up for this afterward. I'm gonna, come on over here, I'm going to give you the mic. Um, she's our, she's our really our new, our new Chief Scientific Officer, um, uh, you know, recent recruiters done a spectacular job. I just want to emphasize, everybody thinks that the BCRF is like us, you know, there is. BCRF, in terms of the science, has an extraordinary, small, but extraordinary effective scientific leadership group that, that there is now running Manish, who's not, he just doesn't hand out mics, but he's also been incredibly involved, uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, um, uh, Elizabeth Flowers is here somewhere, uh, Sarah Ball. So um, why are we doing so little research on metastatic breast cancer? Face the audience. So, um, hi. Um, we don't do so little research on metastatic breast cancer at BCRF. Since 2011 alone, we have invested over $160 million in metastatic breast cancer research. And at BCRF, metastatic breast cancer research goes along two pathways. We have the Evelyn H. Lauder Founders Fund, which is focused solely on metastatic breast cancer and um, incorporates both basic research but also clinical trials. And that has a $31 million to date investment in it. And then in our annual award program, of which many of the investigators are in this room, 
This year alone, we have $27 million, which is more than 40% of the BCRF investment total for this year in metastatic breast cancer research. So if we go back over the years, at least a third of all the investment in BCRF in research is in metastatic breast cancer research. It is the area that was my own research area. It is near and dear to my heart, and I will steward BCRF to continue to keep this as a high priority of investment in metastatic breast cancer research. Thank you. Uh, We've run out of time. We've got a ton of important questions here. Some of them are rather specific. Um, uh, I'm trying to figure out some way that I can get the answers to people to answer that question and maybe, you know, BCR's blog or some other means that we can... Some of these are more general topics, so we're going to sort of get to it. I thank all of you for being here, for answering these questions, my extraordinary panelists, all the scientists are around you. Thank you for being here. Let's have a great lunch. That was BCRF's 2019 Symposium and a special Investigating Breast Cancer podcast. Thanks for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.